work that way. I got this real moron thing I do, it's called thinking. And I'm not a very good American because I like to form my own opinions. I don't just roll over when I'm told to. Sad to say, most Americans just roll over on command, not me. I have certain rules I live by. My first rule, I don't believe anything the government tells me. Nothing. Zero. Nope. And I don't take very seriously the media or the press in this country, who in the case of the Persian Gulf War were nothing more than unpaid employees of the Department of Defense, and who most of the time, most of the time, function as kind of an unofficial public relations agency for the United States government. So I don't listen to them, I don't really believe in my country, and I gotta tell you folks, I don't get all choked up about yellow ribbons and American flags. I consider them, I consider them to be symbols, and I leave symbols to the symbol-minded. Me, I look at war a little bit differently. And welcome to the Great Deception Podcast. I'm your host, Matt. Thanks for joining me. Tonight, guys, I got a quick episode I wanted to get out to you. Um, but before we get there, let's get through a little housekeeping. Guys, I got to say thank you. I've had a couple of folks reach out to me um, about donating to our friend Matthew Smith, who's been on this show multiple times and somebody that I consider a really good friend who's unfortunately been diagnosed with pan pancreatic cancer and uh so we started we his sister started to go fund me for him and i've been trying to help out and promote it as much as possible and so i've had a couple people reach out to me about donating to the show and i said listen guys instead of donating to the show donate to to matthew's go fund me um it's one of those where you know guys were approaching the holiday season money's tight for everybody and uh, every donation is is truly appreciated. And now, whether it's to the show or to to Matthew directly, um, either way, guys, it's it's <laughs> it just gives me a good feeling with all the darkness around us and all the negativity and threats of World War Three and impending doom and fear and this and that. There's still good people out there. There's still a sense of community out there. There's still people who, when someone is in need of help, step up and contribute. And whether it's monetarily, whether it's prayers, whether it's anything, it all matters in the end. And and I'm extremely thankful to those of you who have um, reached out, donated. Uh, thank you so much. I, I mean, really, it means a lot to not only myself, but Matthew and his family. So. Thank you guys for that. On top of it, guys, we've had a couple new patrons this month. So 
I want to give those guys a thank you. So on patreon.com slash the great deception podcast, you can hop in. We have all of the videos for the Monday night master debaters. Um, all the podcasts for the great deception podcast are on there as well. And then I like to post books, pictures. I mean, we got about 60 to 65 old books on there. Um, and it's just a, you know, we, on the app feature, they're starting a chat. So we have kind of a group chat thing that we're going to get going here uh, with the patrons. So if you want to get on that, hop on patreon.com slash the great deception podcast. So this month, Rachel, I want to thank you, Karen. You guys are great. The giant contributor. That's the the $5 um, level. There's a three, a five and an $8. Now listen, anything gets you in the door. Don't feel like you have to do the eight dollar. It's it's just something you know I put out there. So if you want to help out, help with the show costs, help you know throw me a couple bucks for for the work that we do here, I appreciate it. And then we have uh, n- new this month. We have Trev, Cynthia, and Robert. Guys, I thank you all. And uh, I hope to see you all on the Zoom call this month, which will be probably the Friday before Thanksgiving. Um, I'm uh, I'm traveling for work the next week or so uh, back and forth to Connecticut. So I uh, probably won't be this or next week. I'm pretty booked up. But with that said, what are we doing here tonight? Well, I just wanted to give you, and this is going to be a short episode, uh, a, a little background on you know, we're looking at the the news and it's all Hamas and Israel. And I want to go back to the origins of this so we can start looking at the roots of how did this come to fruition, right? Now, we know this goes back supposedly thousands of years. We're just going to go back to to the beginning of the 20th century, right? World War One, And we're going to start looking at the Balfour Declaration and the impact that that had. And and that was kind of the ball that got Israel, the state of Israel rolling. And and, and one of the things I find interesting about this document that I wasn't aware of prior to hearing this speech is the correspondence of the creation with World War I and then the execution of the state through World War II. And that's something, you know, you have to look at. That these, these wars by these bankers are not just by coincidence. So when we start looking at things like this, it, it's very interesting. Now, what is the Balfour Declaration for those who don't know? I'm sure some of you are very familiar with it. But again, we'll go back to November 2nd, 1917. And you have um, a letter written to... It here from Balfour to Lord Rothschild. Dear Lord Rothschild, I have much pleasure in conveying to you on behalf of His Majesty's government the following declaration of sympathy with Jewish Zionist uh, aspirations, which has been submitted to and approved by the cabinet. His Majesty's government view with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people and will use their best endeavors to facilitate the achievement of this object. It being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish 
communities in Palestine or the rights and political status enjoyed by Jews in any other country. I should be grateful if you would bring this declaration to the knowledge of the Zionist Federation. Now, this is very, this is a very deep and interesting document in itself because in itself it doesn't name the Palestinian people. Right? It says the the land of Palestine, but then it says the the rights of existing non-Jewish communities. Those are the Arabs. Right? Those are the that's the other and, and that, that it's funny because it says uh, that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine. From 1917 to 2023, you think things have changed a little bit? I think the Palestinians might have endured some prejudice and their civil and religious rights may have been messed with a little bit. All right, so what are what are we looking at here? Now, I want to I want to just show you this guy first. This is uh Rashid Khalidi. This is the gentleman who gives the speech at the UN about the 100 years following the Balfour Declaration. So this is speeches from 2017. As you can see, he is a professor of modern Arab studies at Columbia University, served as editor of the Journal of Palestine Studies from 2002 to 2020. Um, you know, he, he authored uh, The Hundred Years War on Palestine, Palestinian Identity, uh, The Construction of Modern National Consciousness. He's, you know, he's a very decorated professor. All right. So this guy is well, well informed of this situation that we are going to discuss. So what do, what do we have here? He is giving a speech to the U.N., of all people, find the irony of it because the UN and the League of Nations were instrumental in the creation of the State of Israel. So uh, he's giving a speech to the UN November 2nd, 2017, 100 years to the day of the Balfour Declaration. And he goes, it is a great honor to be asked to speak here on the 100th anniversary of the Balfour Declaration. I am grateful to he, Ambassador Fode Sek of Senegal, Chairman of the Committee of the Exercise of Inalienable Rights of the Palestinian People, to the committee, to the chair, he, Ambassador Jerry Matajila of South Africa, and to the dedicated staff of the UN Secretariat for making this event possible. It is particularly fitting to be speaking today at the UN, which has played such a large role in the Palestine tragedy. Today, I will be addressing the impact on the Palestinian people of the Balfour Declaration and of the League of Nations mandate based upon it. I can only hope that if we shall all become more aware of this historical background, the United Nations may be able to address the harm caused by this declaration and all that followed uh, more fairly, effectively than it has done over the past 70 years. So you're seeing right here, he's laying the groundwork for at the UN and he says UN's part of this great Palestinian tragedy the momentous statement made on behalf of the British cabinet on November 2nd 1917 by 
Arthur James Balfour, His Majesty's Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs, is usually regarded in light of British imperial interests or in terms of its ostensible subject, a quote-unquote national home for the Jewish people. We know a great deal about Britain's commitment to Zionism. We know less about what the support of the British Empire via, via this declaration meant for the aims of the Zionist movement, which for nearly half a century proudly described itself as a colonial endeavor, and which at the same time was a national movement in the making. The ultimate objective of political Zionism, as laid out by its founder, Theodore Herzl, in his 1896 booklet, Der Judaistad, was a far-reaching, as it was crystal clear, a Jewish state in Palestine, meaning Jewish sovereignty and control of immigration into the country, and whatever Britain may have intended, complete and exclusive control over the entirety of Palestine was what the Zionist movement consistently fought for during the ensuing half century and eventually obtained. It did so largely as a result of over two decades of unstinting British support secured via this declaration in the League of Nations mandate that it was based upon. Right? So Britain was instrumental in this. Much of this is well known. However, the Balfour Declaration has another aspect of paramount importance that is often ignored. This was the perspective of the people of Palestine, whose future for the uh, future the Balfour Declaration ultimately decided. For the Palestinians, this statement was a gun pointed directly at their heads, particularly in view of the colonialist ambiance of the early 20th century. As I will show, the Balfour Declaration, in effect, constituted a declaration of war by the British Empire on the indigenous population of the land it was promising to the Jewish people as a national home. It launched what has become a century-long assault on the Palestinian people, aimed at implanting and fostering this national home at their expense. From its inception, Zionism was both a nation, national movement and a colonial enterprise in search of a metrop, uh, metropolitan sponsor. After having failed to uh, find that sponsor elsewhere, Hayam Weizmann succeeded with wartime Britain Cabot. The Zionist movement further thereafter had support of the greatest power of the age, which was about to become one of the victors in World War I whereas Zionism had begun to be viewed with concern in Palestine since the late 19th century, the Balfour Declaration meant that the country was now threatened by a far greater danger. Indeed, at the very moment that the declaration was issued, British troops were advancing northwards through Palestine, capturing Jerusalem five weeks later. The declaration confirmed the nature of this danger. It consisted of a single paragraph of 67 words, which we read before. His Majesty's government view with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people and will use their best endeavors to facilitate the achievement of this object. It clearly being clearly understood that nothing shall be done with which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine or the rights and political status enjoyed by the Jews in any other country. 
And one of the things we have to remember here is, is the Jews were expelled from a lot of countries, much like the Jesuits, who repeatedly were expelled from one country to another and would go to a new place, adopt their culture and identities, and create their own homeland, in essence. So this is a very interesting thing. The overwhelming Arab majority in Palestine which then constituted 94% of the population. So 6% of the population was Jewish or Christian at the time. And that's what you have to understand. Palestine at this time, you know, up until the early 1900s was a mix of Arabs, Christians, and Jews. And they got along relatively peacefully. It was nowhere near the situation that it is since the Balfour Declaration has taken place, which is a shame because it, it sounds on a much smaller scale a lot like what was done in America and what that British colonial mentality did throughout the world in the earlier centuries. So let's get back to this. They were not described as people. Notably, the words Palestinian and Arab do not appear in the text of the Declaration. Furthermore, they were offered only civil and religious rights and no political or national rights whatsoever. Right, So there's no state anymore. They're taking away the statehood even. By way of contrast, Balfour ascribed national rights to the Jewish people, who in 1917 were represented in Palestine by a tiny 6% of the population. Regarded in this way, Britain's backing for Herzl's aims of a Jewish statehood, sovereignty, and control over immigration into the country had a portentous implications. It meant British support for bringing into Palestine and implanting a foreign majority at the expense of the indigenous population's rights and ultimately at the expense of its existence as a people in its own land. That's the name. That's, you know. The natives in America, to a T. The Balfour Declaration. So, so what you have to understand was this wasn't their first go round. This had been done before, and this was part of a plan, apparently. And once you get those wheels rolling, good luck trying to slow it down. The Balfour Declaration thus meant that the Palestinians faced the prospect of being outnumbered by unlimited immigration and losing control of Palestine to the Zionist drive for sole sovereignty over a country that was then almost completely Arab in population and culture. It took just three decades and a mass expulsion of the Arabs of Palestine from their homes in 1948 for these things to happen, but they did. Even before World War I, there was trepidation among the Arabs of Palestine about the rapid progress of the Zionist movement. This became a widespread sentiment as the movement grew in strength and the immigration to Palestine increased. Between 1909 and 1914, the leading Haifa and Hafa newspapers, Al-Harmil and Philistine, published uh, over 200 articles warning against the dangers of Zionism for the Palestinians. Among the peasantry in the areas of intensive uh, colonization, uh, Zionist inroads were felt in concrete terms as land purchase led to the removal of Arab peasants working the land. 
Their concerns were shared by Arab city dwellers who observed a mounting concern of the constant arrival of new European Jewish immigrants. Let's see, say European here. Okay. And that's a whole different discussion. And we talked about that a little in the last episode. News of the Balfour Declaration reached Palestine only with much delay after November 2nd, 1917. All local newspapers had been shuttered since the beginning of the war. Then, after British troops occupied Jerusalem in, 19, in December of 1917, the strict military occupation regime banned news of the declaration from being spread. And it did not allow uh, papers to reopen for two years. There were other reasons for the delayed Palestinian reactions to the Balfour Declaration. They relate to the extraordinary wartime conditions that prevailed in Palestine and that caused intense suffering. The country was the scene uh, of a more than a year grinding battles between British and Ottoman forces, which continued until mid-1918. By the war's end, the Palestinians were already prostrate and exhausted by severe wartime uh, shortages, uh, penury, dislocation, and famine, and the requisitioning of draft animals, a plague of locusts, and a draconian conscription that sent most working-age men to the front. Of all of the major combatant powers, the Ottoman Empire suffered the heaviest wartime death toll, over 3 million war dead, or 15% of the population, most of them civilians. 3 million dead on the Ottoman side, most of them civilians. That, that's 15% of the population. That's a lot of people, guys. Greater Syria, including Palestine, suffered half a million deaths due to famine alone between 1915 and 1918. Civilian deaths were compounded by horrific war ca uh, casualties. 750,000 Ottoman, 750, Ottoman soldiers out of the 2.8 million mobilized died during the war. So basically one-fourth of the soldiers died during the war. The impact of all these factors on Palestine was intense. It is estimated that after growing about 1% annually in pre-war years, Palestine's population declined by 6% during World War I. That's tremendous. 6% decline in population during the war. Right along the time that they're getting ready to roll out this declaration, hmm, thinning the herd maybe? It's 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 wild. It was against this grim background that the mass suffering in advance of the British army that Palestinians eventually learned about the issuance of the Balfour Declaration. The shock of hearing about it was exacerbated by a British occupation that marked the end of 400 years of Ottoman sovereignty, a regime which had prevailed for a full 20 generations. There was nevertheless a rapid evolution in the way the Palestinians saw themselves during and after the war. In a world where nationalism had been gaining ground for many decades, a world war driven largely by unrestrained nationalist sentiments provided a major boost to the national idea in Palestine and other parts of the world. The enhanced sal uh, salience of nationalism was compounded 
by the espousal in 1917 by Woodrow Wilson and Vladimir Lenin of the uh, principle of national self-determination. The endorsement of the national principle by two ostensibly anti-colonial powers had an numerous impact on peoples all over the world. As a result of the hopes aroused and later disappointed by Wilson's 14 points, the Bolshevik Revolution and the Paris Peace Conference, India, Egypt, Korea, and many other countries which uh, witnessed massive anti-colonial upheavals. As a result of the war, the Palestinians were suffering from what might be described as a collective post-traumatic stress syndrome. They now had to face entirely new realities, entered a post-war suffused by a nationalist fervor. The Ottoman Empire was gone, replaced by the hegemony of Britain and France, which in 1915 and 16 had secretly carried out a self-interested colonial partition of the region, the Sykes-Picot Accords, and that was publicly revealed in 1917. Against this could be set possibilities of Arab independence and self-determination promised secretly by Great Britain to Sharif Hussein of Mecca in 1916, and the subject of repeated public British pledges thereafter. While these promises were at best partially and belatedly kept in regards for the Arab peoples, they were never honored where the Arab population of Palestine was concerned. So while other Middle Eastern countries eventually achieved a measure of independence, no such option was an offer for the Palestinians. So you see right here, everybody else had a chance except the Palestinians. Now, what I wanted to look at real quick was this Sykes-Picot um which was a 1916 treaty between UK and France with assent from the Russian Empire and the Kingdom of Italy to define their mutually agreed spheres of influence and control and eventual partition of the Ottoman Empire. Okay, so uh, the primary negotiations leading to the agreement took place on November 23rd, 1915 and January 3rd, 1916 on which date Britain and French diplomats Marc Sykes and Francois-Georges Picot initialed an agreement memorandum. So now, the agreement effectively divided the Ottoman provinces outside the Arabian Peninsula into areas of British and French control and influence. The British and French-controlled countries were divided by the Sykes-Picot line. The agreement allocated to the UK control of what is today southern Israel, Palestine, Jordan, and southern Iraq, and an additional small area that included the ports of Haifa and Acre to allow access to the Mediterranean. France was to control southeastern Turkey, Turkestan, Syria, and Lebanon. As a result of the included uh, Sazanov-Palilog agreement, Russia was to get Western Armenia in addition to Constantinople and the Turkish Straits already promised um, under the 1915 Constantinople Agreement. So as you can see here, this was not a good agreement for the Palestinians or for anyone in the Middle East as a whole. Okay. 
in Palestine, Great Britain operated with a different set of rules uh, than the in other League of Nations mandates. Unlike all other Class A mandates established by the former Arab provinces of the Ottoman Empire, all of which were treated, according to Article 22 of the Covenant of the League of Nations, as provisionally independent nations, Palestine was denied such treatment. Instead, it faced a set of rules rigidly dictated by the terms of the Balfour Declaration, and the declaration had been tailored to suit the, uh, what's it say, Desiderata of Zionism, a European colonizing project and a nationalist movement which now had acquired as its patron a formidable empire whose armies were then just in the process of conquering Palestine. British troops were not to leave the country for over 30 years, by which time the Zionist enterprise had become firmly entrenched. As soon as they were able to do so in the wake of World War I, the Palestinians began to challenge vigorously, both in the form of governance imposed by the British based on the Balfour Declaration and the introduction of the Zionist movement as a privileged interlocutor uh, to the British. They did so initially in the shadow of the strict British military occupation regime that lasted until 1920, followed by a rule by a series of British high commissions uh, commissioners. The first of them was Sir Herbert Samuel, a committed Zionist and former cabinet member who laid the government foundations uh, for much followed. In understanding the unsuccessful efforts of the Palestinians to oppose this regime, two crucial factors are paramount importance. The first is that unlike most other people who fell under the sway of colonial rule, the Palestinians had to contend with not only the colonial power in the metropole, but also in terms of the Balfour Declaration. Thus, they had to deal with a colonial settler movement, which, while beholden to Britain, was independent of it and had a powerful national impulse and an international base, most importantly in the United States. The second is that Britain did not rule Palestine outright. It did so as a mandatory power of the League of Nations. In rejecting Palestinian protests about the Balfour Declaration, British officials could point to the international legitimacy for its terms provided by the 1922 League of Nations mandate for Palestine, which, at the invest instigation of the British themselves, had incorporated verbatim the text of the Balfour Declaration, and in seven of its 28 articles, substantially amplified and expanded on its commitments. Thus, the British government could hide behind the terms of their League of Nations mandate in denying the Palestinians' treatment as an independent nation in accordance with Article 22 of the Covenant. Now, this, guys, reminds me of, like, how Obama slid in the Smith-Munt Modernization Act into the NDAA, right? This is using legalese, using word magic to gain control over people and land and that's what they did here they hid it in different places and then when it came time they said oh well it's here in the league of nations covenant so 
sorry, guys, you're shit out of luck. Uh, I feel bad for you Palestinians, but you're going to have to find somewhere else to go. Okay. So the Palestinians were therefore in a triple bind, which may have been a unique in the history of the resistance of indigenous people to European colonialism, right? Like we keep talking about, this is nothing new. They faced the might of the British empire in the era between two world wars, when not one single colonial possession with the partial exception of Ireland succeeded in freeing itself from the clutches of the European imperial powers. Now, yeah. Think about that. Basically, Ireland was the only one who got independence. They faced as well an international colonizing movement with a national mission and with its own independent sources of finance and support. And that's a key thing. There was a lot of financial backing to this as well, to this Balfour Declaration. Who's backing it? The Rothschilds. What were they supposedly doing in Palestine? Buying up plots of land. Besides those generously offered by Britain. And finally, they were confronted by an international legitimacy, according to British rule by the League of Nations, which had sanctified the Balfour Declaration and its colonial import for the Palestinians by endowing it with legal imprimatur of the preeminent international body of the day. The Balfour Declaration thus became more than a statement of British by the British cabinet. It was internationally sanctioned as a legal document. In explaining the failure of the Palestinians to retain control of their ancestral homeland alongside understanding the shortcomings of their leaders and the hindrances resulting from fissures within their society, it is vital to keep in mind that this triple bind they were in. Right. They, I mean, this is like a David versus Goliath type situation. And that's what they're dealing with. They had, they're going up against the Americans. They are going up against the British. The French don't really care, but they're part of this too. And then you have the Zionist movement of the international realm that's putting pressure on it because they want to flood this area. Before November 2nd, 1917, the Zionist movement was both a national movement in embryo and a colonial enterprise with a fixed metropole, like an orphan searching for a foster parent, right? And that's what you see over and over again. I talked about it before, all of these expulsions over and over again, okay? You want to hear some of them. 1294, they were expelled from Switzerland. 1360, from Hungary. 1420, from Austria. Uh, 1495, Naples. 1496, Portugal. 1492, Spain. 1551, uh, Bavaria. 1569, Pope Pius V bans him. And then it even goes as far as you go to the Civil War. A lot of people don't know this. In 1862, Tennessee, Mississippi, and Kentucky banned them, expelled them under the orders of Grant. So this is something that happened over and over again. So they had no home. They were always a people looking for a home. That's why they say like an orphan searching for a foster parent. When it found one in Great Britain, as symbolized by the Balfour Declaration, the uh, uh, colonization and transformation of Arab Palestine into a Jewish state could begin in earnest. This process was backed soon afterwards by international legitimacy provided by the League of Nations. 
It was backed as well by an indispensable iron wall of British bayonets, in the words of the most forthright of the Zionist leaders, Zayev Jabotinsky. Seen from the perspective of the Palestinian people, the careful, calibrated prose of the declaration amounted to a proclamation of war on them. For the next few decades, this war was waged by the Zionist movement with money, legal means, propaganda, mortars, car bombs, and by the British Empire with multiple forms of repression, prison camps, exile, summary executions, warplanes, tanks, and artillery. The issuance of the Balfour Declaration thus marked the beginning of a century-long conflict in Palestine, supported by an array of outside powers in much different forms. This conflict continues until this day. It's not much different forms. I mean, the Palestinians are pinned to Gaza and the West Bank. Israel has the vast majority of the land. They control the access to and from Gaza and the West Bank. And they have tremendous support from the United States to the tune of $3.8 billion to upwards of $7 billion a year. And by Britain as well. And the majority of the world community that just blindly supports the Israeli government and state. Okay. Those who say this, however, are an absolutely miserable track record of failure in attempting to resolve the core issue at stake, the conflict between the Palestinian and Israeli peoples. In fact, this historical background is essential to understanding why this conflict has lasted for so long and to its just resolution. It also helps to understand that this did not begin in 1967 or 1948, as some short-sighted observers would have it. And it didn't start in 2023 on October 7th. Okay, guys, this has a long history. Finally, it points out to the avenue towards a real lasting sustainable peace and towards a real reconciliation and compromise between the Palestinian and Israeli peoples. Genuine reconciliation depends on acknowledging historical realities rather than ignoring them. And genuine compromise must be based on justice and absolute equal treatment absolutely equal rights for all and not the imposition of the will of the stronger on the weaker. That is not compromise. Exactly. Right. You can't put people in an open air prison and call that fair. You can't label these people as animals and call that fair and expect to treat them in an equal manner. The historical background points to another fact. This is that the peace between Palestine and Israel is far too important to be left to the self-interested ministrations of the great powers alone. Again and again, the history of the League of Nations and United Nations shows us that those great powers were responsible for imposing formulas in Palestine that suited their interests of the moment. In every single case, these formulas exacerbated and magnified this conflict. In uh, so doing, these great powers have ignored international law and essential elements of the covenants and charters they themselves helped to shape, such as the principle of self-determination that animates both the covenant of the League of Nations and the Charter of the United Nations. 
As a son of an international civil servant who served the United Nations for his entire career, I have been close witness for decades to the failure of this body to live up to its principles where Palestine is concerned, largely because of the machinations of the great powers. I am not native, however, and as a historian, I know all too well power has its prerogatives. Both the United Nations was not set up to make the world a more comfortable place for the powerful, but rather to bring about peace and justice and rule of international law. Over the 100 years since the Balfour Declaration was issued, the 70 years since the passing of the Partition Resolution, and the 50 years since the adoption of UNSC 242, neither peace with justice nor the rule of law has prevailed where Palestine is concerned. It is high time for the United Nations and for the entire world community to act in this spirit. Specifically, after a century in its high time that uh, in the establishment of a national home promised by Balfour and the League of Nations to the Jewish people in 1917 and afterwards be matched by the establishment of a national home for the Palestinian people. So he's saying, hey, listen, I have no problem. If you're going to create a state for the Jewish people, there must be a state created for the Palestinian people. Right? Because that was part of the original agreement. They would not infringe upon their civil and religious rights. And it appears they might have done that a little bit. And after 50 years, it is high time for the injunction of US, uh, UNSC 242 forbidding the acquisition of territory by war to be vigorously enforced where the territories occupied in 1967 are concerned. Finally, it is high time for the United Nations and the entire international community to take vigorous action to break the century-old logjam created and perpetuated by the great powers. This man-made logjam has prevented the principles of self-determination from being applied fairly and equally to both parties to this conflict the Palestinians, and the Israeli peoples. They both deserve the peace and stability of an equitable resolution of the conflict between them on the basis of international law and the spirit and equity that would bring. And I, I have to wholeheartedly agree with him right there. You know? I mean, it, it's one of those where... Uh, you look at it and it's just, it's tough because you see what happened. You see how it is extremely one-sided, right? There's, there's, it's very difficult to be able to see this thing and say that this is an equal, equal battle here. Okay. Um, I'm just trying to find the map. That ah, oh, here we go. Okay, so here's what we're talking about. When we're talking about this was the initial agreement. Okay, this is what it looked like in '46 before the UN plan, and you will see that this is this is when they talk about about 94% Arab. And about six percent Jew, six percent other, which I think it was about three percent Christian and three percent Jewish at the time. Now, look at 1947 and what happened there. That's when they divided it up 
after World War II. And then those were the dividing lines. You can see it's it's close to 50-50, much closer than it was in 46, and then much closer than it will ever be. Then you look what happened in 1949 and through 67. Those were wars. And Israel acquired and conquered land in Palestine, Lebanon, and Jordan. Um, okay, and claimed it. And then you'll see by 2008, look at this. And it's even smaller today. You have a small slice of Gaza in the uh, southwestern corner. And then you have the West Bank, the scattered settlements over there. And it's just, it is what it is. But you have to understand that Listen, the, the, the Palestinians are victims of this. They had no say in this. They were told, much like the natives here, we're taking this. And you can you can be peaceful with us, but then we're going to make agreements and not live up to them. And that's what they did in America over and over again, was made treaties with the natives and broke the treaties. And then slaughtered natives. And anytime anything happened to the Americans or the quote-unquote good guys, it was a massacre. These, these barbarians did this to us. But anytime the, the other, it was the other way around and the, and the upper hand went to the American troops, it was a battle that they won. Right? Good battle, little bighorn. Okay? Massacres like that. And that's the same thing that goes on here. Right, we've had wars. They're not equal wars. The Palestinians don't have the equal military backing that that the Israelis have from the United States, where they give them three point eight billion every year for military defense, military use, whether it's defense or offense, whatever. And they have our unlimited backing, apparently. So it's not like it's an equal fight when these two sides do go to war now. Now, back then it was a little different because you had. You know, the other sides were jumping in. You had Lebanon, Jordan, Syria, all willing to support the Palestinians, Egypt even. Then what happened? The U.S. U.N. bought the Egyptians, in essence, for $3 billion a year and said, hey, for this $3 billion, you're going to leave Israel alone, let them do what they're doing over there, and you're going to agree not to, to have another war with them. And that was the... The agreement in 67. And since Egypt has not gotten involved and look what happened to the Palestinian territory. It's just shrunk and shrunk and shrunk. Okay. And so that's what I, I just wanted to give you from the Palestinian perspective also. Now, what do I, you know, why do I, why am I doing this? It's not. Because I'm anti-Semitic. It's not because I hate Israel. You know what I hate? I hate the Israeli government as much as I hate the American government. And there's nothing anti-Semitic about that. I hate this, the, this Zionist mentality of they can do whatever they want in the name of Zionism. And that's not just in, in, in Israel. It's around the globe. Zionism is a disease right now. 
And that's nothing against the Jewish people. Much like the Americans here, I love the people of these countries. Iranians, I have nothing against them. Their government's fucked. Saudi Arabia, nothing against the people. The the king is, that whole crown idea is fucked. Russia, nothing against the people. Putin, little gangster, right? It's one of those things, guys, where this whole concept of anti-Semitism, you cannot talk factually, truthfully, honestly, openly about this conflict without that term being thrown around. And I think that's that's bullshit. That's a scapegoat. It's a way to get out of this. And it's a shield that many use to hide behind. And I think I think that's it's totally inappropriate. And it's overused and it's disgusting if you ask me. If you have nothing no grounds to fight on, no argument to 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 fight with, they just throw that out there and boom, game over. ADL comes in and blows up your spot. Right? And that's not what this is. Okay, and they're going to try and divide you into camps. I stand with this side. I stand with that side. Don't stand with either side. Stand with the people like you and me that are affected by this, whose lives are turned upside down and a lot of them ruined by this. To all the innocent civilians that have died from this, I think we're over 8,500 now. You know, I think it's a little over 1,500 on the... Um, Israeli side, and it's like 7,500 on the Palestinian side. And that's the other problem I have with this. Okay. Anytime, and this goes for America as well. I'm not just pinging Israel here, but anytime Palestinians act against Israelis, the retribution is tenfold. It's like, you know, if you believe the whole 9-11, well, 9-11, they killed 3,000. We went over to Iraq and Afghanistan and killed millions. It's It doesn't make sense, right? This senseless death, this bloodlust that people have. And it's it's not the bad guys that are usually dying. It's the innocent civilians or the majority of the people that are dying. And that's the tragedy in all this. That's the most disgusting part about all this. The innocent women, children, people that get caught in the middle of this when all they're trying to do is just live their life. So that's what I wanted to uh, get across here. And, you know, the the whole idea that, you know, I am I am a, a sellout for the Palestinian. No, I'm not on either side. I think both sides have some very done some very disgusting stuff and i can't support either side from that standpoint but if we're going to talk about you know have a discussion here i'd love to have discussion about it but we gotta get past the 800 pound gorilla in the room okay and move ahead and be bigger than that and be able to discuss things like this because this is a really important topic and and you know the ramifications of it could be global 
And that's what we have to understand. So you have to understand the background before you just jump in blindly and say, I support this because the media is pumping it your way. Pump the brakes. Go back to our motto of question everything. And go do some reading. And that's when you can make an educated choice and not an emotional one and not one that's based off propaganda. And that's what this show is all about, guys. I'm trying to, to, to just show you some of the stuff that I find and, and the ways that I get around the, the propaganda and just falling over and over again for their scheme, their current objective, whatever the whole, uh, you know, whatever cause they're pushing these days, the propaganda. Do that. Take a step back. Research for yourself. Don't fall for the mockingbird media propaganda and you'll be much better off for it you won't live in that constant state of fear because you'll see a lot of the stuff they spew is just nonsense take the power back do some research on your own educate yourselves like gi joe said knowing is half the battle all right with that said we're going to wrap it up right here. Again, guys, if you like the show, please leave a review uh, on Apple or Spotify. Share the show. You can, in the show notes, is the links to all my stuff. Okay, the Patreon. Check it out. Patreon.com slash The Great Deception Podcast. You can see all the Monday Night Masturbator videos on there for my patrons. I have a slew of book collections that I'm adding to regularly. And uh, all my Great Deception podcast videos are up there too, or getting up there. I'm slowly loading some of the old ones up there. But hey, you want Great Deception podcast merch like this? It's great. We're getting around Christmas time. Go check the merch link in the bio. I have some Monday Night Master Debater t-shirts, some regular uh, Great Deception logo hoodies, t-shirts, men, women, you name it. Go check it out. And then... Uh, that's about it for now. Keep go check out the Money Master Debaters. All right. Leave the you guys can leave feedback on Spotify. Also, I do check those comments. Unfortunately, there's no way to respond. So I do read them though. I do check them. And and some of them are funny and 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 some of them are good, you know, two cents thrown into the discussion too. I appreciate that. Everybody, use discernment. Stay strong and question everything. I'll tell you, my mind doesn't work that way. I got this real moron thing I do, it's called thinking. And I'm not a very good American because I like to form my own opinions. I don't just roll over when I'm told to. Sad to say, most Americans just roll over on command, not me. I have certain rules I live by. My first rule, I don't believe anything the government tells me. Nothing. Zero. Nope. And I don't take very seriously the media or the press in this country, who in the case of the Persian Gulf War were nothing more than unpaid employees of the Department of Defense, and who most of the time, most of the time, function as kind of an unofficial public relations agency for the United States government. 
So I don't listen to them. I don't really believe in my country. And I gotta tell you folks, I don't get all choked up about yellow ribbons and American flags. I consider them, I consider them to be symbols and I leave symbols to the symbol-minded. I look at war a little bit differently.